everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program with a study from Osaka Metropolitan University in Japan. And it talks about the mighty power of broccoli sprouts. I don't know if you've eaten broccoli sprouts. They're a little pungent and they're very small. And you generally don't have a large salad. You may, maybe have a bowl full. But that bowl full of broccoli sprouts is more powerful than a, a whole head of broccoli, a crown of broccoli. I'm sure your parents at some point said, eat your greens, right? Eat your vegetables, eat your fruits. And hopefully you did. But a lot of kids today are not. A lot of adults don't eat broccoli. Why should you eat broccoli sprouts? Because the cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and asparagus and kale, they, can, they contain nutrients that can help reduce your risk of diabetes and cancer. And that's because they contain what are called organosulfur compounds, such as glucocyanates and isothiocyanates. And these exhibit a broad spectrum of bioactivities, including antioxidant activity, and they can help block uh, the development of cancer. If you have cancer, it can help also prevent it from spreading and actually cause cancer cell death. So a team led by a professor uh, at the university, they wanted to look at uh, the sprouts and the polysulfides in the sprouts uh, and during the process germination. So a tiny little sprout, in fact, that's true of almost all your microgreens, and there are almost 100 different types of microgreens, kale, arugula, uh, watercress, all these, garlic, onions. These are really good for you, and that's why I suggested every meal, or at least one meal a day, you have some cruciferous vegetables. Because these polysulfides in the broccoli, in the broccoli sprouts, significantly increase during germination and growth, with approximately a 20-fold increase in polysulfides on the fifth day of germination. So it only takes a week, and suddenly you've got something that's really nutritious. You can, you can grow broccoli sprouts on your counter. And one of the healthiest things you can put in your body, and one of the most important disease prevention nutrients you can put in your body, it turns off, well, it turns off inflammation. I have never tried wasabi, W-A-S-A-B-I. It's, it's like a mustard, common to the Orient, not in America. But according to Roswell Park Cancer Institute, one of America's most prestigious, oldest cancer research institutes, wasabi kills cancer cells. That's correct. Wasabi can help to prevent and inhibit cancer cell growth, specifically cancer of the bladder. And this is because of its high, again, isothiocyanate content, just like broccoli. And uh, researchers have been focusing on how the isothiocyanates can help with cancer treatment. And there's lots of different ways it does this. And there's a lot of studies in the peer-reviewed journal on this particular type of mustard. And so it's kind of greenish, and you can make it yourself, get a powder, just add a little water, and you don't use a lot because it's, it's hot. And, but they use it on different types of items, mainly on sushi. 
and uh, ornori rolls. But here's what they said. The isothiocyanates are organic compounds. They're known as strong inhibitors, meaning they can inhibit the progression of cancer. But also, once the isothiocyanates are inside a cancer cell, they bind to proteins and induce apoptosis, or programmed cell death. In short, cancer cells commit suicide when exposed to the isothiocyanates, which are found in wasabi and other vegetables. So, one more reason to have your cruciferous vegetables, the Brussels sprouts. By the way, you, you cook your Brussels sprouts, you can bake them also uh, for only about five minutes. Then you cut, and by the way, always cut them in half. Never, never cook them whole, because you're going to get a more thorough uh, softening, and that allows the nutrients inside to be released. And if you cook the whole Brussels sprout, frequently the outside is cooked, the inside isn't. Uh, so that's what you do. And by the way, um, horseradish is also good for you as well. Mustard is good for you as well. Mustard, horseradish wasabi, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, all of those contain isothiocyanates, and that can help with cancer. And in one other study, um, by the way, uh, wasabi has 40 times the isocyanates of broccoli. Just saying, something that we should use. And from Mount Sinai Hospital, they took a look at at, uh, the polyferritated, what are called forever chemicals. They just don't go away. A lot of this is in plastic, like what you use to microwave. Not good. And they found factors in there that contribute to thyroid cancer. So, one more reason, this was published in Biomedicine, one more reason to stay away from all these forever chemicals. Stop with the whole idea, well, I just punch this button in five minutes, my dinner's done. You know, you find these in non-stick cookware, in water-repellent clothing, in stain-resistant fabrics, all right? Uh, Anything that resists grease and water and oil, they have these forever chemicals. They're called PFAS, and they're not good. They really cause havoc in the body, and they don't leave the body. So that's important. And finally, from Baylor College of Medicine, exercise. Yes, exercise is found to be nearly as good as Viagra in overcoming erectile dysfunction. So for the men in this audience, probably 80% over the age of 40, who have trouble either obtaining a full erection uh, or holding that erection for a period of time, You want to be able to not use Viagra. I'm opposed to that. In fact, I don't know if you remember this. Maybe you saw it. But there was one week when Viagra first came out. And every day I was invited on Fox News to be the debater against it. And they had uh, had, um, doctors on supporting it. So there's a lot that can happen that's not good when you use Viagra. But if you took L-arginine, the amino acid. If you also took uh, choline, um, which is good for the brain, but also stimulates signals to reproductive organs. And if you also 
if you're exercised, all that makes a difference. And they looked at 11 different randomized controlled trials and showed that exercise was just as good as Viagra to treat men with erectile dysfunction. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break because I have a lot to do today, including a very important in-depth um, in-depth commentary I want to share about the environment. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. I have two things I want to share the rest of this hour and leaving time at the end for you to call in and share your points of view. I've been showing you the various pieces of the puzzle to the COVID narrative, even starting with giving them the benefit of a doubt. They truly wanted to help in the pandemic with the best medicines they could. They failed. But that doesn't mean that they had criminal intent. And for a lot of people, they believe that this was a depopulation agenda. I have not seen the evidence for that. But now, when we're hearing Jeffrey Sachs on yesterday's program and all the others, they're showing that there was an effort on behalf of many people just to get rich, to hide information. And now I'm going to show you one more piece of that puzzle because Dr. Naomi Wolf, arguably one of America's most respected feminists, especially on public health issues involving women. This is important uh, because she was given all these hundreds of thousands of documents that were gotten through Freedom Information Act, and then she got 3,500 volunteers by specialization to review these and see what did this say. These were the manufacturer, the, the vaccines, original papers. None of these did what they want to give to the public. And they lied, out and out lied, as did the FDA, the CDC, about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. So here she is in a short clip. Now, where I would take issue with her, where I do not agree with her, is she believes this is a part of a depopulation agenda. I do not. I don't see the evidence. Do I see that there was a test done in Africa where a whole group of people in Kenya Young girls were given a vaccine, and in the vaccine, there was luteinizing hormones that would block reproduction and cause sterilization. Yes, that happened. But to say that this was the purpose, the vaccine, depopulation, I've not seen the evidence. She, she believes it is. On that, we disagree, but on everything else, we agree. Now to the clip. I mean, one thing people have been able to do for thousands of years is have sex and have babies you know, without any intervention or help from anyone else. It's a, a tremendous uh, way that the human race is, is self-reliant, that it can survive catastrophe. Well, the tech bros and probably China, and I'll get to that, want to take that away from us. This is clear in the Pfizer documents. So, again, I talked about a war on women. Um, there's a section of the Pfizer documents in which Pfizer breaks down the adverse events and concludes that women sustain 72% of them. And of those, and these are Pfizer's words, 16% are quote-unquote reproductive disorders compared to 0.49% for men. 
So they're very focused on reproduction, on female reproduction. And I was asked, uh, you know, how do I, it's my belief that they were trying to disrupt especially female reproduction. And the question is, how do I know that? And the answer is from the structure of what they looked at. Again, I'm a literary critic, but that, like, this is a mystery novel in which the question is, how do we stop women from having healthy babies? That's the story of the Pfizer documents. So in the Pfizer documents, there's a, you know, a chart. And again, Dr. Chandler found this and wrote about it. And as a woman, this is one of the most painful things to see. And I'm Jewish, and my grandmother, as I mentioned, and my grandmother uh, lost nine brothers and sisters to the Holocaust. So I don't say this lightly, but this chart is a Mengele type of chart. It's Mengele science. Why is it Mengele science? Because they break down 20 different horrible things that can happen to women's menstruation. In completely neutral clinical language, they describe them, and there are tens of thousands of women in each category. Bleeding every single day of your life, having two periods a month, having no periods ever, meaning no babies. There's now a group in France called Où est mon cycle? Where's my cycle? Uh, to agonizing cramps, hemorrhages, things I won't even describe to you. And they just note them calmly, one by one by one. And I'm looking at ruined lives. Not to mention super strange things they brought about, like 10-year-old girls menstruating on first being injected, long postmenopausal women in their 80s and 90s bleeding again after being injected. Well, Pfizer, you know, wasn't enough just to watch women be ruined. Um, again, I keep saying this is a respiratory pathogen. Why are they so focused on sex? At one point, they mate vaccinated male rats and unvaccinated female rats. Then they kill them, and they dissect and look at the cells of their sexual organs. Okay? So they're very, very focused on mammalian sexuality. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You need eighth grade math to guess that if women are having horrible menstrual problems in 2021, they're going to be fertility problems in 2023, right? So now it's 2023. Igor Chudov compared databases in, in countries around the world. There are a million missing babies in Europe. They never got born. Double the number of miscarriages and spontaneous abortions in Scotland. 13 to 20% drop in live births around the world. Two or three times the number of live births, I'm sorry, spontaneous abortions and miscarriages in Tel Aviv as before and so on around the world. And, and now we know why, now we know the mechanism. So it is, it is an attack, not just on humanity, it's an attack on our future. Um, I'm really worried that I just found out after being censured by Ofcom, so this is the second Western government that's gone after me and my team. Uh, Ofcom is the UK media regulator that decided that I was guilty of um, harm by telling women about these dangers and men on a British news show called GB News. Um, it's, 
it's not just an attack on us, it's not just a mass murder, which is the language that Ofcom objected to, uh, but it's an existential attack. And think about it chronologically, I'm very worried that a source in Britain said that they wanted to embargo this information for 20 years, because I'm like, what do they expect to have happened in 20 years? Um, but I think we're going to see, I think this is the tip of the iceberg, you know, from, from understanding We've got, a, you know, we've got a report on turbo cancers. We've got a report on strokes. We've got a report on you know, liver damage, kidney damage. I don't want to depress you, but all around you are people who are suffering from illnesses. None of their doctors are telling them that these illnesses are in the Pfizer documents as side effects and that we now understand the mechanisms of them. And if you want to know what's happening to your loved ones, please read the reports on dailyclout.io. They're free or order the book, please, on Amazon. It has all of it right there. But all around you, all around me, are people suffering and dying from side effects that are in these documents that they knew about. Okay, that's Dr. Naomi Wolf. Being censored, not only that, once she began to talk about women's health issues, reproductive issues, and how women were completely healthy before the vaccine and then could not conceive after, could not become pregnant, and then the big fight. The federal agencies, the FDA, CDC, said there is no connection whatsoever. They also said there's no connection between the vaccines and myocarditis. But then one of the world's leading cardiologists, in fact, the most cited cardiologist, nephrologist in the world, Dr. McCullough, said, yes, there is an association. And then Walensky went on television saying, not to worry. It's very rare and it's transient. You'll overcome it. Well, clearly, I don't know where she got her medical degree, but... Any cardiologist will tell you, when you scar the heart, the heart cannot repair that scar. And that will end up, in the end, causing you problems or killing you. That's why we see a lot of young athletes just dropping dead, because they didn't know that they had myocarditis. So now the truth is coming out, but it's not just dribbling out, it is pouring out. We have a tsunami of information showing everything they said was a lie. So these are the known side effects but they didn't withdraw this from the market. They still allowed every woman in the world to put their body at risk. Now that's just from reproductive problems and ovarian cancers, but now we're seeing turbo cancers. We're seeing people who had beaten cancer. They were in complete remission and healthy. Suddenly, for no scientifically plausible reason, after taking the vaccines, the cancer comes back, but it comes back like no oncologist has seen before as a turbo cancer. So it's all coming out, and every day I'll give you a little more of the picture. But now I'm going to spend the rest of this program with a discussion. And I'd like you to participate, please. Our talk back number is 888-874-488. I've written up an article with Richard Gale called Tribal pontification about climate change. So let's just ask a question. If I were to get a thousand young people in their teens, a thousand of the, of the let's say millennials in their mid thirties, a thousand uh, people who are X generation in their forties and fifties, and a thousand 
baby boomers, and I ask this question. Do you care enough about the environment and things that happen in the environment that you would be motivated to ask your legislators to create a program that would actually help stop that, lessen the impact, or help the citizens? I'm willing to guess that probably 80% would say yes. Now, those that are likely to say 100% yes are those who've, for example, had their homes burned down or nearly burned down in California, Montana, Texas, and those living in states that have beautiful forests like Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. You get off the beaten road, it's a gorgeous amount of trees there. In fact, that's where the furniture capital of America is, North Carolina, because they have so many trees. Now those trees are being decimated. Then what about all the people in the Midwest and the far west, the southwest, including Texas? In Texas alone, the last time I checked, there was 1,230 different water insecure environments, some with no water. They have to have their water pumped in, you know, in these tankers on a weekly basis. And others who are seeing some of the coldest winters with the Arctic uh, freeze coming down. In one day, a temperature went from 70 degrees to 30 degrees and killed thousands of livestock because their body couldn't adapt to that. And there was no protection, no environment for them to go into. And then what about all the people affected by hurricanes who don't have insurance now? The insurance companies are leaving Florida and the insurance, if you get it, is very expensive. I know how much I have to pay for my home here, double what it was before the hurricane. So yes, most people care about the environment. Good. Now, ask this. How many governments in the world have actually concrete programs in place where they're helping the people and not have the terrible effects of extreme weather events? There are some. But in the United States, there's none. Zero. We're still in the pontification platitudes. Let's talk about it. Let's talk it to death and show up at all these uh, conferences on the environment. Well, exactly how's that helping prevent tipping points? Well, it doesn't, but we can, we can make ourselves look good. Okay. And that's where we begin, because we're beginning with a massive deception. Corporate deception, government deception, group deception, and individual deception. It would be a gross understatement that the divided States of America has never been so fractured in its modern history. Select any subject that touches upon you personally, impacts people's lives, fragile sentiments and cherished beliefs, and one uncovers a variety of quarrelsome tribes. Yes, we're a nation now of tribes fighting one another. We've been balkanized by people who control all major industries. And when you control the industries, you control all governmental agencies. Now, each has a very belligerent leader or leaders, and their voices are shrill, harsh, just like those who want to punish all Palestinians, irrespective of whether the Palestinian in question supports Hamas or hates Hamas and just wants to live in peace as Israeli citizens do with each other which they deserve. Both deserve that peace. But then the leaders have the power. So you could have a thousand people saying, we want peace. We respect Israel's right to live in, in peace here. But we also 
one of our rights to live here without living in a prison. You could have a thousand on each side saying yes, and ten people who control both sides saying no. We have other agendas. And that's what's happening with the environment. And as a result, we are balkanized. We're pushing and shoving to reach the stage's microphone so we can scream the loudest, condemn the worst, weaponize our words to make others feel ashamed that they even spoke up or had a thought. As a result, those who are the most lacking in decorum, manners, morals, ethics, and spiritual values control the dialogue at this time. Now, it may not be too far-fetched that if our early forebearers were to visit our country today, they might think that we were some strange new muted species. For example, civility in the commons is no longer in our postmodern American vocabulary. Of all the 20 or 30 times I was in Great Britain, I always loved going to Hyde Park. And they have a they have a speaker's corner where someone can get up on a little box and talk to anyone who happens to find what they're saying of interest and and they can say what they want. Now you can't. You have speech that has been weaponized. So if you say the wrong things about vaccines, about COVID, if you say any criticism of Israel, suddenly you're anti-Semitic and that's a hate crime, you can go to jail. Do you know that last year, Great Britain imprisoned over 3,000 individuals for doing nothing more than making comments? Russia had about 400 or so. Wow. And yet now that's the new norm. Small special interest groups who've radicalized the commons and taken all of the things we once cherished, family, mother, father, brother, sister. We don't want to hear those words ever again. I'll call. I'm not going to say, hi, mom. I've got to say, vagina that bleeds. Oh, let me put on father. No, no, sorry, not father. Let me put on uh, testicles producing spermatosa. And we've allowed this to happen. You've allowed it to happen if you haven't spoken up about it. So at the end of the day, I can easily identify sociopaths, psychopaths, warmongers, everyone on Fox News, warmongers from hell, especially Sean Hannity, who's never seen a reason not to go to war if it benefits the Lindsey Grahams of the world and the military industrial complex. But where are the common sense people? Where are the reason people? Where are the legitimate, caring, nurturing, unbiased minds? You're not going to find them in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and in the CBC. You're not going to find them in Congress with few exceptions. What you'll find are people who pretend they care about you. Then look at your life now. Look at all the major cities now. What have they done to improve the quality of your life, to improve the quality of your health, to improve our air, our water, our soil? They haven't done a damn thing, and they're not going to. So then who's the problem? You are. That's right. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, when was the last time you actively engaged in seeking the truth while first starting off with a predetermined notion of what the truth is? And nothing is more true than that in the environment. So then we have all these people rushing out saying, I have the truth. Is it a universal truth? It is documented? Is it backed up? What supports your truth? Well, Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity said, or uh, the president said, and that's your truth? Well, then maybe you should... Uh, better understand what it means to develop some critical thinking skills because today we no longer have a commons that has anything resembling 
an open, honest, objective space, we have altered, destroyed the American vocabulary of its meaningful responses to these people. For the majority of their citizens, climate change and global warming are acknowledged as very real existential threats. Yet somehow that message never reached our shores except in dribs and dribbles. Certainly, lip service ad nauseum has been sounded about climate change for the past 50 years. But anyone can look around to see these words are empty and will never solve the irrefutable challenge ahead. Today, there are nearly three distinct ideological groups in conflict with each other over the threats of climate change and the desecration of the environment. On the one hand, there are those who fully embrace scientific research and analysis. Largely, these are the climate experts, people who really know what they're talking about, who have spent their whole adult lives researching a given topic. Those conducting the actual research, undertaking expeditions to the North and South Poles, to the Great Boreal Forest, uh, to the Sahara Deserts, to the Amazon to see its deforestation rate and how long can that act as the lungs of the planet before it's decimated. These are people who are capable of making very valuable predictions. Besides the many institutions and university departments, this group is perhaps best represented by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and also NASA and their cousins in other nations. Undoubtedly, their findings provide much to worry about for humanity's long-term future. Ocean temperatures are, factually, now the warmest on record. Atmospheric CO2 is the most concentrated in millions of years. We are witnessing wildfires increasing exponentially. Recently, climate scientists observed that the rise in forest fires is destroying the ozone layer. Not good, because as the ozone layer is uh, completely depleted in different areas, then everything underneath that hole is going to get burned. If you were to stand where there's an ozone hole outside for 10 minutes, you could have third-degree burns. And yet, not a word. What are we doing about it? Nothing. The U.S. mega drought in 2022 was the worst in 1,200 years. Fact. The Antarctic ice shelves continue to collapse at the rapid speed that they are, and coastal cities and shorelines are already sinking. Fact. Warming trends are on the winning streak as monthly records are being broken more frequently. Fact. Not fiction. Now, on the surface, we might expect the scientific faction to be the authoritative voice for accurate climate change analysis. However, there's a fundamental problem. And unfortunately, this problem is not focused upon in any of the major mainstream media. Although the scientific climate community has an excellent track record when observing, identifying, and measuring phenomena and trends underway, their predictions rarely come to pass. Very often, they are flatly wrong. Their leading spokespeople who become the public face of this research, such as Al Gore, John Kerry, Bill Gates, King Charles, Greta Thunberg, have a terrible track record as soothsayers. King Charles warns us that we have seven years to save the planet. 
Oh, that was in 2009. Sorry, King Charles, you were wrong. That same year, Britain's then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, was more dire. Ooh, he said. He's giving humanity 50 days to get its act together. Well, that was 13 years ago. For over two decades, Al Gore has been annually proselytizing that the Arctic will be ice-free. Neither has this prediction come to pass, nor is it will it likely in the near future. Perhaps one of the chief doomsdayer is Stanford University biologist Paul Ehrlich. Now, he's highly respected in his field. I read his work, and almost anyone going to college in the 1960s and 70s was aware of it. He was the author of the popular doom and gloom epistle, The Population Bomb, published in 1968. At that time, Ehrlich predicted that by 1990, 4 billion of the Earth's residents would be wiped out by global famine, social upheaval, and wars. Over the decades, Ehrlich oddly has continued to revise his apocalyptic forecast. Always wrong. Why anybody continues to listen to him is more baffling. Of course, over a half a century ago, nobody anticipated the forthcoming Green Revolution. Despite this agricultural revolution's many shortcomings, and there are many, and often dire failures, many failures, including the widespread introduction of chemical and genetic modified season agriculture, it did succeed in increasing food yields remarkably. In all fairness, it may have been a major contributor to preventing potential famines. One of the climate change's science faction's major shortcomings is the incapability of relying upon current complex algorithmic modeling analytics to accurately make reliable predictions of climate and warming trends projected into the future. Not long ago, I had a sit-down with one of America's leading environmentalists, a professor of scientist, and in the course of our discussion, he made a prediction that within six years, it was Tap City. It was over. The, the Arctic would melt. It would cause so much methane gas to be released. It would cause so much increase. We would go up to the two-point measure that we don't want. We're about, one, we're about one and a half now. And he said, great areas of the world would not be habitable. Couldn't grow anything. And so I asked, stopped the camera, and I said, Think about this. What if you're wrong? You have so many things you say that are correct. Why not not put a date on it, but rather say that within the foreseeable future, within our lifetimes, if we don't start doing something fundamentally important about the environment, then the areas of the world are going to become non-producible as far as food. The soil will be too hot. And he didn't want that. So I went ahead and filmed him, put it in the film, and then he was wrong. Next time we went to interview him, he didn't want to do the interview. And I said, we have too many people telling us, here's the schedule you have, and none of those schedules have been accurate. None. It's not as much a problem of poor modeling. Instead, it's the institutionally blind faith in the false promise these modeling methods represent and a professional failure to acknowledge these methods' limitations. This is true of medicine as well. For example, every year the World Health Organization and its affiliate biology research centers 
employ fanciful modeling methodologies to predict the likely annual flu strains in order to begin influenza vaccine production. However, they've never been right, not once. For decades, year after year, these predictions bat below 50% accuracy. It is not uncommon for their predictions to be off 70% or more. Therefore, if these computational modeling methods are unreliable and unable to produce the spread of the virus, how much more complex is making accurate predictions about future weather, global warming trends, and atmospheric conditions? Given approximately 100 in sundry negative meaning cooling and positive meaning warning feedback loops that interfere with the climate on a global scale, there are likely numerous unknown and perhaps even unintangible factors such that computations must exclude out of necessity. So it's guessing, all right? Accurate as far as finding the problem, grossly inaccurate in telling us when all this is gonna happen. Because I'm quite sure if you knew, if you knew that you were going to die within a year, I don't think you'd just say, well, okay, I'm just gonna to go to work every day, do my chores every day, you know, hang out, watch television every day. No, you'd try to pack everything you could into that one year. But we don't seem to have an understanding of how we don't have just one problem, global warming, we have acidification of the coral reefs. We have the depletion of over 80% of all the large fish in the oceans. We have overfishing even those. We have the largest plastic garbage patch in the world, three times the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean, and nothing's being done to stop it at its source. You go into a store today, you buy your lunch. Let's say you buy a sandwich, even a healthy sandwich. It's wrapped in plastic. You want some sauce to go on it, and that's in a little plastic container. You get some kind of beverage, let's say a soda or even spring water. It's in plastic. None of this is going to biodegrade. And then uh, you get, well, in some states you can't get a straw, but let's say you can get a straw plastic. You go to the counter and you get a plastic bag, plastic. And yet, ask that person, are you concerned about where, after you use all this, where is that going to go? What's the likely outcome of it? They don't know. And they're disconnected at the cognitive level of it. The second climate and environmental contingent is more radical. They tend to emote fear rather than reason. And they don't look at the hard evidence on hand. At the grassroots activist level, many of these voices may be regarded as the archetypical useful idiots who are unable to look at the larger picture outside of the futurist dystopian imagery in their sci-fi novels. The group cherry-picks the scientific headlines that best support their agendas. Well, look at it outside. You know, it's uh, seven degrees below zero and three foot of snow. So where's your global warming now, they say. Well, the very same thing that creates the hottest days on Earth also creates the coldest day on Earth. If you actually took the time to get away from the microphone, Sean Hannity, and do some real research on your own, oh, but that doesn't happen, does it? All those trip to Gaza, uh, and being a friend of Netanyahu in Israel, did you ever go to Gaza? No. 
Do you want to know about history of the Palestinian people? No. Do you want to know how many innocent people there have nothing to do with terror and violence? No. I see. So then when you say Daniel is right, you know, they have a right to defend themselves. Well, look at the numbers as of now. Had you spent a day, let alone a week or a year or 50 years in that location, maybe you'd have a different perspective of how nice a guy this extreme right-wing radical, in my personal opinion, who has about as much credibility in caring about the people as Mussolini did in 1922. But that's just my opinion. So this is the group that believes with absolute certainty that all global warming is anthropogenic. But it isn't. By whatever means possible, including government-private partnerships, for green programs, whatever humanity has achieved through the industrial age during the past two centuries needs to be ultimately dismantled. That's their view. These are the prophets of doom and gloom, and many private interest groups are delighted they exist and perhaps blindly act on their behalf. This pseudo-stakeholder agenda is represented by the World Economic Forum and its international block of corporate elites government leaders beholding to globalization and its faux Western democratic pageantry and large, largely compromised uh, at every level of ethics, morality, and science. And they're also, they're, they're, they're compromised by nonprofit NGOs, the so-called do-gooders. Well, go to Haiti. And I have a lot of friends from Haiti. I'll do a lot of work on AIDS down there. Why don't you go up on the hill where all the private gated communities, where the NGOs who have their $80,000 SUVs, who don't go down to Port-au-Prince, don't go down to the ghettos, well-funded. Oh, and by the way, whatever happened to that 12 to $13 billion that was supposed to get to Haiti to rebuild the country and help the people who were down and out, over 200,000 who were killed? I don't see a nickel of it. But no one stopped the funding. Where's the funding ever go? We don't ask that. Yeah. Grassroots activist groups are their idealistic shock troops. This is the agenda that demands the need for more solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles. Okay. And we certainly want to reinvigorate, according to Schellenberger, nuclear power programs. Well, that's something I know a little bit about. I did the multi-award-winning documentary, doing a lot of research with Helen Collicott and all the other experts, Michel Kaku, about how clean, how safe is nuclear power, and it isn't. What happens when there's an explosion, and there has been? And what happens to that pollution? And we had the records. In fact, Dr. Chester Stock and myself wrote an article with graphs on how many people died, how many babies died, beyond normal, 50,000 below Three Mile Island. Interesting because I got the records and then when we went back to records, they were expunged. So they didn't want anyone to know the consequences, just like with COVID. Deaths, injuries, really? No, yes. On a scale never before seen in human history and covered up. They want to rapidly deindustrialize and uh, they want new species engineered for our food. Insects, that's it. Genetically engineered hamburgers, that's it. We should all be eating insects. 
I'd like to see Bill Gates eat insects. About a bucket full, without any ketchup. See how he likes that. What's wrong with organic produce? No, no, that's kryptonite. Don't talk about resettling the land and taking away industrial farming, which we should have done a long time ago, and go back to what is known to be sustainable and non-polluting and helping the earth. Locally grown organic produce. So all of their solutions are directly tied to the preservation of perpetual economic growth, the gross domestic product. Who are the three biggest polluters in the world as countries? The United States, China, it's actually China, the United States, and India. And what do they count upon to continue having investment and showing the world that they're prosperous? Growing their economies. Well, how do you grow an economy? Factories, people, making stuff that people want to buy. That all contributes to the gross domestic product. Well, is it possible to have all this industrial growth and have more factories and burn more coal at the same time lower the carbon dioxide level? No, it is not. To the contrary, just take a look at the last five years. Those three countries alone have increased every year the carbon dioxide emissions 2.2%, 2.5%. Well, then that's kind of a contradiction. So we should do just the opposite. Instead of saying grow our economies, we should be shrinking our economies. We should be buying less, building less. We should not be putting all of our energy and money into something that makes money, but rather something that gives us quality of life without pollution. We're not willing to do that. In fact, the largest investors, such as BlackRock and JP Morgan, would never have it otherwise. Grow, grow, grow. More and more and more. Nothing is ever enough. If solutions to global warming and environmental de degradation cannot be monetized exponentially in order to replace humanity's reliance upon fossil fuels, then it's rejected outright or tossed to the bottom of their to-do list. But we still have to look a little deeper because this entire group, perhaps the most dangerous, in my opinion, to humanity's future is plagued by a cognitive disconnect between advocating for technologies and solutions in of themselves that certainly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but equally have devastating consequences on the environment. It is a green ideology where technology holds higher value than human life, except for those who command her. Electric vehicle batteries are just one example. All the sweet, little, decent, very humble personalities in Hollywood, there is not one. Arrogant, self-entitled people who tell you, I've got my electric vehicle. Then it's not just enough to have an electric vehicle. You have to have the most expensive or the best or have it specially painted. Everyone, everyone's in to draw attention to themselves by virtue signaling. But you didn't say, come with me. You have the money and resources. You can even use your private jet, since you're so much involved in environmental uh, sustainability. Fly your private jet over to Nigeria or the Congo. And look at all those young kids, six, seven years old, digging all day long so they can, they can extract cobalt or some other mineral necessary for your cell phone, your computer, or even for uh, lithium for the battery. And how much is going to take to offset the amount of the environment you've destroyed, the carbon dioxide you've created in the manufacturing of those minerals, 
into an electric battery. You cannot live long enough if you're the average person or drive a car that long in order to equal it. So it's just a game, and I'm absolutely 100% opposed to these electric vehicle batteries at this time. Now, if they get a small battery, and if they don't destroy the environment and cause additional pollution, fine. But they haven't got there yet, so it's all virtue signaling. And uh, in any case, then they say, well, look at our wind farms. Yeah, the wind farms. And how many of those gigantic blades, hundreds of feet long, are biodegradable? None. And how long do they last? Under 20 years. Hmm. Do they cause any harm? Yeah, they kill millions of birds every year. Make noise for anyone in the area who can't live there. I see. So what if we have about 2 or 3 or 4% depending upon the country of renewable energy? Yeah. Hmm. So you're using something that has a catastrophic impact on the environment which further contributes to ecological decay and global warming. And you think that's an answer? The minerals and metals necessary for the so-called renewable energy technologies, nuclear power, require astronomical large-scale mining operations that may never meet humanity's demands to transition away from fossil fuels. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to move away from fossil fuels, which I agree you should, Shouldn't you then, at the same time, build industries that are non-polluting, maybe greenhouse, greenhouses, hydroponic houses that can grow food, organic food, for millions of people, and give the people who are in that industry a chance to transition into a quality job that's healthy and that produces something good and that doesn't cause disease like black lung, brown lung, cotton, coal, and them. But we don't do that. We close down an industry, goodbye. I've worked here 30 years, what should I do? Well, that's on you. The irony is how much fossil fuels are necessary for mining operations and the high carbon footprint to make your cell phone, to make your uh, solar panel, to make your, your wind power. People are living in a non-lucid dream if they believe otherwise. Researchers estimate the actual emissions necessary for manufacturing an electric vehicle can be up to 68% higher than a conventional gasoline-powered vehicle. Some batteries pack 10 times as much power as an average household consumer uses in one day. And very often, electric vehicles are charged at home. Finally, and that's electricity, that's coal. And finally, 40% of the total climate impact of a battery comes from the mining of aluminum, cobalt, nickel, and lithium, which are highly dirty and very polluting as industries. The New Green Deal push for solar and wind energies are likewise fraught with contradictions. Solar power is unreliable and efficient, weather-dependent, and similar to electric vehicles, requires rare minerals, some highly toxic like art arsenide, cadmium, cobalt, gallium, and lead. A Columbia University estimate predicts that by 2035, 384 new mines for lithium, cobalt, and nickel will be required to keep up with growing green, new green demands. Solar energy is also water-intensive. In A single, one single large solar farm can require over 600 gallons of water for every megawatt hour 
the power produced. That's a huge amount of water. And where are many of these? In the deserts. Finally, the entire solar industry is heavily dependent upon government subsidies, which again makes this industry economically unsustainable, but not for the person who owns the company the government is going to do the deal with. Wind energy suffers from similar non-friendly environmental drawbacks as solar. It is unreliable and efficient, requires large open spaces of land, and because the turbines rely on magnets, MIT engineers have warned that over-reliance on wind power, in addition to electric vehicles, will strain the supply of scarce rare minerals, such as neodymium, dysprosium, and uh, other minerals. A Harvard review estimates that one ton of rare earth, just one ton of minerals, produces 30 pounds of dust, up to 12,000 cubic meters of toxic gases, like hydrofluoric acid and sulfur dioxide, and 75 cubic meters of wastewater, for a total of 2,000 tons of toxic sludge. Wow. Likewise, industrial chemical agriculture, although extraordinarily profitable for large investors and megacorporations, is no solution to the climate crisis. However, to support and invest in a Marshall Plan to revive small farms and rejuvenate organic agriculture practices, which are without question far more sustainable, is simply not profitable for the global parasitic class. And yes, the entire upper class are all parasites at some level. Certainly other technologies such as geothermal, and we have a lot of those around the country, wave power, we're surrounded by oceans, and large investments in, to harness free energy from cold fusion are truly more renewable, non-toxic energy sources with a far smaller carbon footprint. Now, just checking our time. Oh, we're almost, well, we're out of time. So I'm going to hold off there, and I'll continue tomorrow on part two of looking at the environment from an honesty perspective and showing you what we should do versus what we're planning on doing. And I also want to point out Germany and the Green Party there, how they destroyed the country, literally destroyed the country. I'll go into that in great depth, how... The average German now is out in the woods searching for wood because they can't afford, afford gas because of the pipeline that the United States destroyed. It's a mess. But it doesn't help if we don't educate ourselves. This is a platform for critical thinking at a deeper level and honest review so we know what our solutions are. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you for watching. Have a nice day.